Everybody doing okay? You guys doing all right? It's convincing. That was good. Thank you. Okay, so uh, before we get started, we, we, today we're going to talk about some really serious stuff. I just want to get that out of the way right off the bat. Um, if you've never been here before, we go through whole books of the Bible, and, and that's wonderful. I think it's the best way to actually learn um, about Christianity and about the Word of God, and of course, therefore, more about God himself. Uh, the, the hard part about being a pastor that does this and goes through whole books of the Bible is when you come across extremely uncomfortable material, you just, you just got to go for it, right? So um, we're going to do that today. We'll talk about really polarizing stuff today like debt and the government and work ethic and um, all these fun things, right? And we'll talk about internal strife. And we'll talk about social justice, which should be something that the church cares about. And sometimes we get into arguments about that. Um, we're going to bring up all these things today. So because today is going to be kind of heavy, uh, I want to open you up with a, with a fun story at, at your worship pastor, Kyle's expense. So, um, so if, if you're new here, we do a lot in Africa. We actually just had a team leave Friday to go to Uganda. Our church has a big house there, and, um, and so we, we have missionaries there all the time. We have a full-time missionary that, that lives in Uganda. We do a lot of work there. It's neat. If you've been through the Following Jesus course at our church, we have just translated that into Lugandan, which is the, the language of Uganda, and we're teaching hundreds of pastors are following Jesus, stuff that we teach here so they can go and then teach their churches all over the nation of Uganda. And it's really, really neat. A woman named Tara that comes to church here now lives out there. Anyways, so I've been to Africa a bunch. Um, a lot of people who have worked here uh, have been with me. Kyle's been with me several times. And one time we're out in, in the sticks of Uganda. I mean, way out there. They've never seen white people. They, they've never seen people with like tattoos and it's fun. Kids are, you'll find that kids just like, try, they try to rub it off. They'll walk up and they're doing this. And I'm like, it's not going anywhere. You know, so, um, but uh, really interesting. So they're already just kind of like, we look weird to them. And so Kyle, uh, we're out here in this really rural area and everyone has, has uh, goats on a rope. And that's kind of like their lawnmowers, right? These little goats just kind of keep the grass down. And so I look over one day and Kyle's got the rope and he's pulling a goat over and he gets the goat real close and he's, he's petting it. And of course, all these African kids are just looking at this blonde haired white guy and they're just like, what in the heck's he doing? Petting the lawnmower, right? And he's sitting there like <laughs> petting the goat, but I'm, I'm recording it on, on my phone, you know, him, him touching the goat. And so uh, later on, we're on an island right, right out in the, the middle of Lake Victoria and you're talking about rural, I mean, extremely rural. And so we're out there and they keep cows out there on, on ropes. So I look over, Kyle's pulling a cow over and he's sitting there and he's, he's petting the cow. And so I pull out my phone again and I'm recording him petting the cow. And again, all the natives are just kind of like, what in the heck, he's petting you know, dinner. And so he's <laughs> doing that. So we're on our way home and we're going through Europe. I think we're in Brussels or, or Amsterdam or one of those places. And if you've ever been through customs, you know they have these series of questions they ask you at customs. And the first one, I'm behind Kyle, and the first question was, have you, have you touched any animals? <laughs> and Kyle's like, nope. <laughs> and I'm standing right behind him, and I'm just like, you know, and I have it on film. So I'm like, you know, I could get like Interpol and everyone just, you know, you didn't know that you, you worshiped with an international criminal, but uh, just want to let you in on that. So there you go. That has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today. I just want to hear you laugh before you all end up hating me in about 30 minutes. So <laughs> it's good. 
So we've been working through the book of Nehemiah. If you've never heard of this book of the Bible, it's in the Old Testament. It's sandwiched in between Ezra and Esther, towards the front of your Bible if you have one. Let me tell you a little bit about it. Basically, this is a story about a guy who was Jewish from Jerusalem, who was exiled to what is modern day Iraq in an area called Babylon at the time, about 1,700 miles away from his home. He finds out when he's working for the king that his home city is in ruins, it's destroyed. So he gets permission from the king to travel back to his home area to rebuild the city. Specifically, he wants to rebuild the wall around the city to keep it safe. In chapter four that we did last week, we see that they have started taking on the task of rebuilding the wall. And because they're doing that, all of the neighboring nations around them that are not Jewish, very similar to the situation Jerusalem and Israel is in today, all of the nations around them were hostile towards them and started making violent threats towards them, started uh, talking about how they were going to kill and they were going to come in and disrupt and throw into confusion the Jewish people. So what Nehemiah tells his people to do is he says, well, we're not going to go attack, but we are gonna defend ourselves. So he taught them how to work while they're still holding a weapon that they were up 24 hours a day, people keeping guard looking in all directions because they had enemies in all directions. So what we kind of learned and picked up from chapter four is, as followers of God, if you're a follower of God in here, Peter goes on to say in the Bible that we also have an enemy. It says that the devil is like a roaring lion looking to devour us and he walks around, right? At all corners, trying to find a vulnerable spot to come in and wreck our lives, right? Or wreck those around us. So the Bible says that we have to be sober and vigilant. We have to keep an eye out. We have to be on guard. That's what we talked about last week. We have to be on guard because there is evil, right? At every corner around us. This week, again, we're gonna get into some tough stuff, guys. It's just, it's there, so we have to address it. We're gonna talk about social justice. We're gonna talk about our work ethic and that how we work matters. We're gonna talk about the fact that if you call yourself a Christian, every single one of us that claims Christ is going to lead on some level. We are going to be the example to people around us on some level. I don't care what your lot in life is, right? And I'm gonna show you this in the scripture towards the end of the sermon, okay? So we'll get through chapter five relatively quick today. Again, we're gonna talk about just, just some hard-hitting stuff. This book of the Bible was written 2,500 years ago. And if you think about it, not in the fact that it was written in a foreign land 2,500 years ago, think about your nation right now. And I'm telling you, it is shocking how applicable this stuff is to us right now, right here in the United States, okay? So I'm gonna pray. We'll dive into this. You should have got a notes handout when you walked in. Everything's on the TVs around the room. If you have a smartphone, the Experience Community app, just click on Sermon Notes. Everything's there. And if you have a Bible, um, Old Testament, Book of Nehemiah. All right, cool. Okay, all right. What COVID didn't skim out, I'm just gonna go ahead and do it today. So we'll weed out the rest, all right? Let me pray. All right. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We thank you, Father. Lord, thank you, God, uh, that we can come in here together today, that we can worship you freely, that we can talk about your word. God, I thank you for this church. God, this is a good church, God. We're not perfect, Lord, but, but I feel like that we're doing our best. So God, keep your hand on us today and bless us, God, as we study your word. Lord, I pray that everything we talk about today, that it honors you, that it, that it blesses us, God. We pray for every church in our city. We pray for our other campuses, God, and all the churches in the cities where they're located. 
And Father, we just pray, Lord, that we don't come in here necessarily looking to be affirmed on everything we already believe, but I pray that we come in here looking to be challenged, God, and looking to grow closer to you, even if it stings a little bit. So Father, we love you. We thank you, we praise you, God, and we give this day to you in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm gonna go back, I'm gonna read a little bit. We'll get through it pretty quick, and uh, I think you'll find it interesting. Chapter five, this is Nehemiah speaking, okay? There was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. Some were saying, we, our sons and our daughters are numerous. Let us get grain so that we can eat and live. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children, yet we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Remember that. Some of our daughters are already enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. Okay. Chapter four is about external pressure, right? You have the people of God and you have all these external pressures coming in on them from all sides. Chapter five is about internal pressures, about strife within the community. They had already put safeguards to keep the outsiders, if you will, at bay, but now they were starting to fight inside their own people. Now listen, these problems had been around long before Nehemiah came into the picture. But now we're gonna find out later in the chapter Nehemiah has been made the official governor of the area. So now the people have someone to complain to, right? They have someone to bring their grievances to. The first group of people that brought grievances to Nehemiah were those people that did not own land and they had to work every single day in order to provide for their family. Working class, if you will, right? They didn't own a lot, they had to work, and if they didn't work, they didn't eat. So because they had no land, they couldn't grow their own food, they had to purchase it from people that did have the land and have the goods in order for them to survive. This makes me think, like in our day and age in Rutherford County, if you live in Rutherford County, think of a couple in their mid-20s that is working hard, they're doing their best, but because the average home in our city is about $375,000, because rent is astronomical, they get in, they can't buy a, a land, when they get into a place to rent, rent is so unbelievably inflated that these people are doing the best they can, but they just can't really move ahead very much. That's pretty much what this first group is, and we're seeing that a lot in this area right now. The second group of people was a little better off, but were still having economic problems. The second group of people, they owned land, but they were having to take out loans against what they owned in order to buy food for their families. So even though they were in a slightly better state, they were struggling to produce for their family because there was a famine and a shortage of goods. So everything was hyperinflated price-wise. Again, maybe that sounds a touch familiar. So these people owned land, but they were still struggling as well. The third group of people were also landowners, but because of excessive taxes, they had to take out money and borrow money from other Jewish people to pay the Persian government because taxes kept going up. Now, what was happening, the first problem was is that the taxes were too high. 
The second problem was that they, when they would borrow money from their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, they would charge an inflated interest rate. So when they finally came time to pay the loan back, the loan had doubled, tripled, whatever the case may be, and they were stuck in this endless cycle of going further and further into debt, and they could not get out of it. Now listen, this may be the slide that I'm most passionate about today. If you go back into verse five, I said, remember it. Nehemiah records that we are selling our sons and daughters into slavery. How did this happen? This happened because in a time of crisis, people took advantage of each other. It happened because people were irresponsible with their finances. And it happened because people had got into excessive debt. Listen to me, Americans who call themselves Christians in 2021. The excess and carelessness of our generation will always affect the generation that comes after us. Do you hear me? Not just on a macro level, I'm talking about you and your spending. How we handle our finances, our greed, our materialism, our excessiveness and our debt will affect our children. Now at the seven o'clock that is predominantly young people, they're like, that's right, it was my parents' fault. Now listen. Listen, I got two kids, a 12-year-old and a nine-year-old, and they're both exceptionally smart. They'll go to college one day. Now, you younger people in here, if you take out a six-figure number to go into debt to go to school and don't pay it back, it doesn't just go away. You know who pays for it? My kids. And it's not fair when their tuition goes up. What we do, I don't care if you're in your 20s or whatever, our excessiveness and carelessness always affects other people. I'm gonna tell you something about the government. They're like a casino. The house always gets theirs, always. And when we live careless, someone has to cover the cost, always. This is why we have to be wise with how we live. Don't spend money we do not have. This is why we have to be careful. This is why we have to be humble and not try to always keep up with our neighbor because chances are they can't afford it either. Stay humble, don't be greedy, don't be materialistic. And only when we're wise with our money and humble with our lifestyle can we then be generous and give to others. People tell me, well, I can't afford to tithe. Your car bill is $800 a month. You can afford it, but that dumb car is worth more than the kingdom of God to you if we're being honest. That's the problem. And so it's not that we can't afford it, it's that our priorities are insanely, insanely out of whack. That is our problem. And so we wonder why more people aren't generous. They can't be generous. They're in debt so much that they don't have any money to help others out. That is a problem. And it does not correlate with the principles of this book. So what we learned just so far, we learned two extremely important principles. One, we have to handle our money the way the Bible tells us to handle our money, to live within our means, right? to be faithful to the work of the kingdom of God. That means you're tithing. Now listen, before we get any deeper in this, I don't know who tithes in here. I don't know who doesn't tithe. And we have a generous church. And if all of you decide to tithe or do more than that right now, it doesn't change my lifestyle. I'll still drive that 2007 RAV4, right? Which just screams luxury. I'll still live in my house built in 1985. I'll still wear t-shirt and jeans. It doesn't change anything. I don't have any motive about that. But I will tell you this, 
If you will live biblically with your finances, not only will God take care of you monetarily, it changes the state of your heart because quite frankly, it's not yours anyways. And so that's how we have to live. Live within our means, avoid excessive debt because the Bible says the debtor is slave to the lender. That's in there. And if we do this, we can be generous. That if your neighbor is struggling, that we can help them out because we've been blessed. And so the Christian should understand grace, that sometimes people get into hard times. And if we as Christians see other people who don't have enough, it's not socialism or communism, it's Christianity, that if my brother is starving and I have enough to eat, I should help them out. But we can only do that when we have prepared ourselves financially to do that. Because again, we need to remember that every blessing that we have in our life, we need to live open-handed with the gifts of God because it's only by God's grace that we have anything. And the Christian should know this. Well, I've earned it. You've earned it because God gave you a healthy enough body to earn it and a sharp enough mind to earn it. And if you're arrogant about it, God can take those things away too. Oh, sorry. I was getting so preachy. I skipped a slide there. (laughs) I became extremely angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. After seriously considering the matter, I accused the nobles and officials, saying to them, each of you is charging his countrymen interest. So I called a large assembly against them and said, we have done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who are sold to foreigners, but now you sell your own countrymen and we have to buy them back. They remained silent and could not say a word. Then I said, what, are you do- what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God and not invite the reproach of your foreign enemies? Even I, as well as my brothers and my servants have been lending them money and grain. Please let us stop charging interest. Return their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves and their houses to them immediately, along with the percentage of the money, grain, new wine and fresh oil that you've been assessing them. They responded, We will return these things and require nothing more from them. We will do what you say. So I summoned the priests and made everyone take an oath to do this. I also shook the folds of my robe and said, may God likewise shake from his house and property everyone who doesn't keep this promise. May he be shaken out and have nothing. The whole assembly said, amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did as they had promised. So when Nehemiah heard that the people of God were taking advantage of other people of God, it said he became extremely angry. Now this is important. In Nehemiah's time, it was not against the law to charge whatever interest rate you want on a loan. So if, uh, I don't know, if my friend Zane over here borrowed $100 to me, it wasn't unethical for me to give a 100% interest. So when you pay me back, you gotta pay me 200, right? That was not against the law in Nehemiah's time. It's not against the law now either. Another thing that wasn't against the law in Nehemiah's time, that if Zane couldn't pay me back, then I get his children. He would have to pay with his own children. That was not against the law in Nehemiah's time. But what Nehemiah is trying to prove here, and this, this applies to our day and age too, just because something is legal does not make it ethical and moral and right. Listen, if you work for one of these places, I'm, I'm kind of sorry, not sorry that I'm going to say this. 
I pass about five of those quick payday loan places when I come to work from my house to here. They're evil places. I don't care what anyone says to me. They take advantage of people in hard economic times. They charge some exorbitant amount of interest. Can't tell you how many people have been in my office because they got in a tough spot, borrowed $500 at 50% interest, got in this tornado of debt and could never get out of it, right? And that is completely legal. But just because those places are legal does not make them ethical and right. It does not make them moral. And so Nehemiah made it clear The law is secondary to what is biblically correct and that Christians should care. Christians should care when people are taken advantage of in their vulnerable positions. Christians should care about justice and social justice. That's what Nehemiah was saying here. So Nehemiah calls a meeting. It says he accuses the nobles, right? He talked about how bad it was that they sold slaves at all, but they were selling slaves to other Jews. We were enslaving our own. And he says, what you're doing, it simply is not right. For a follower of God to take advantage of anyone is wrong, but for a follower of God to take advantage of his own brother and sister under God, that's even worse. It's like enslaving your own sister or brother or mother or father. He goes, that's terrible. This is wrong, it shouldn't be so. And what that does is Nehemiah kind of unknowingly foreshadowed a principle that that holds the whole Bible together. Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, when he was asked, what's the most important command? He says, well, there's, there's two of them. The first one is to love God, right? And then the second one is to love others. We say that a lot in Christian circles, but we, we often don't live it out very well. But what, what Jesus says is there's two, this whole book can be summed up in two very simple principles. Love God, love people. If you break down the 10 commandments, 40% of them have to do with God, 60% of them have to do with how we treat each other. And so that even comes to business, how we do business, how we work and how we, we conduct ourselves at our jobs and how we handle finances. It all ties together. Now here's the thing, Nehemiah is not against success. God's not against success. I'm not against success. I'm not against wealth. Man, if you're wealthy in here, praise God. What a wonderful gift. I just hope that you steward it the way God wants you to. God's not against success. God's not even against uh, accountability. If someone takes out a loan, you have to pay that loan back, right? And if you don't, there are consequences to that. And that's just the way the world works. And there should be consequences for that. But what Nehemiah is saying to the people in, in, in his area is yes, we have to do business, but let's show grace, let's show mercy, let's have fair prices and fair ethical ways of doing business because that honors God. And it goes back to Jesus' statement, treat other people the way you wanna be treated, right? That is the second great command, to love others as you love yourself. So it goes back to Christ. So Nehemiah gets the people together and he says, okay, let's, let's, let's start with a blank slate. Let's everyone give everything back that you've borrowed, that you've taken, right? Give it all back and let's humble ourselves and let's do it the correct way. Shockingly enough, right? All the people said, okay, we'll do it. So Nehemiah, it makes you wonder if he was a little skeptical if they would do it. He said, hey, bring in the priests and make everyone swear to it, right? So the priests come in, he makes everyone swear an oath And then Nehemiah does this interesting thing. He shakes his robe out. And that means two things. The first thing he did when he kind of shook his robe out was, okay, 
We've had this conversation, it's done, let's move on. The second part is it was symbolic. It was symbolic, he says, may God likewise shake from his house people that break what we've just promised. He was basically saying, if we, listen, if we, the people of God, take advantage of people, if we, if we get rich off the backs of other people, right? If we're uncompassionate, if we're unrelenting, if we're unethical, because everything ultimately belongs to God, Nehemiah says, God gives us this and he can take it away too. And if we have sworn to be ethical and treat others the way we wanna be treated, but we break that, Nehemiah said, let God shake you off, right? Let him take that blessing from you. The bottom line is simple. How we work matters. How we do business matters. Well, my boss sucks. Well, the Bible says you're not working for your boss. The Bible says you work unto the Lord. So whatever your job is, wherever God has you now, you're not working for just your direct report. You're working for the King of Kings. Do it in a way that is honorable. How we use our resources matter to God. We can either honor him with what he has graciously given us, or we can be arrogant and say, it's mine, 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 and do whatever we want. And eventually God's gonna take it from us. Eventually it's going to affect us, right? So we have to make sure we're honoring him. Now look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah. I'm talking about the person, not the book of the Bible. Look at the example that he's going to show to us in this last part. Furthermore, from the day King Artaxerxes appointed me to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until his 32nd year, 12 years, I and my associates never ate from the food allotted to the governor. The governors who preceded me had heavily burdened the people, taking from them food and wine as well as a pound of silver. Their subordinates also oppressed the people, but because of the fear of God, I did not do this. Instead, I devoted myself to the construction of this wall and all my subordinates were gathered there doing the work and we didn't buy any land. Let me pause there for a second. Nehemiah said the government didn't buy anything that it couldn't afford. <laughs> there were 150 Jews and officials as well as guests from the surrounding nations at my table. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some fowl were prepared for me. An abundance of all kinds of wine was provided every 10 days. Look, look at this. But I didn't demand the food allotted to the governor because the burden on my people was so heavy. Remember me favorably, my God, for all that I have done for this people. So if you were not here at the beginning of Nehemiah, Nehemiah asks his boss, King Artaxerxes, if he can go on a trip and rebuild his city and come back. Uh, Nehemiah probably didn't realize it was gonna be a 12-year trip. King Artaxerxes probably didn't realize it was gonna be a 12-year trip. But when Nehemiah got there, King Artaxerxes said, hey, why don't you stay and why don't you be the governor over that area? So listen, this is so important. So now we have a, a, a man who is now a, politi a political leader, right? He's a governor. But look at what he says. In that time, the governor lived below his means, lived below what was his right to take, and he never ate the food that was allotted to him. Imagine, if you will, 
a government that sacrifices their own comforts for the greater good of the people they should be serving. If that wasn't sarcastic enough, I'll, let me turn it up a notch. Do you, know your average, do you know your average senator makes about six times what you make and works about a third of the time that you do? Now, I'm anti-political, but what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. And if we are to be the people, right, and if they are to work for the people, something has gotten backwards somewhere along the line. And so what he says is this politician, Nehemiah, he didn't just say a bunch of flattering things from a podium, he lived it. He denied the comforts that he could have had because it was too much of a burden on the taxpayers. That's what he did. Now, why was Nehemiah so different? Because Nehemiah feared God. Nehemiah knew that all of his authority came because God gave him that authority. He said the previous governors of the region, they took, they, they took, uh, um, they took control and they, they took advantage because they had a position of authority and they oppressed the people, not just the governors. It said all the subordinates of the government, right? That they all took advantage because of their title. But Nehemiah said, I didn't do that. Why did he not do it? Because he had a proper fear and respect of God. So listen, he built a wall to protect them. He did economic reform. That's what chapter five is, is he's restructuring the economy. Those things are important. He built an army. That's important. All these things are important. But what we learn from Nehemiah is we can do all this social justice. We can do infrastructure. We can do economic reform. But if God and the principles of God are not in the middle of that and driving that, it eventually falls flat. That's what Nehemiah was saying. It is good to do infrastructure and build stuff up and make sure that it's a good place to live. But all of it falls flat if God is not at the center of it. That's what made the difference. And what we learn from that is the heart has to be put in the right position first. I'll brag on you. When I'm saying this, it's a brag on you guys. You guys are the ones that do it. This is the most benevolent community building church that, that I have ever seen or been a part of. I was speaking at Brentwood Baptist uh, Wednesday, all to senior pastors from all over the country. There's this conference for some reason they asked me to be a part of every couple of years. And I was speaking to all these senior pastors from all over the place, telling them about what we do here. And there is no church that does the amount of social justice that this church does. That's a good thing. There is no church that helps out schools the way this church does. There's multiple schools that we give 10, 20 grand every year to, to elementary schools and middle schools. And we do these, so we, we pump into the economy of our, our cities. We do social justice. We feed the poor. We clothe the naked. We go out and give hot dogs to people coming out of bars drunk on Fridays. We do all of this stuff. And that's good and we should. But here's the thing. If, if at the core of that, and if the point of all that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ, all the social justice in the world will fall flat if Jesus is not the end game. We can make sure that every homeless person is morbidly obese because they eat so much, but if we have not given them the bread of life and they go to hell for eternity, we have failed. Amen. So at the tip of the spear has to be Christ. And there are so many movements right now saying we have to change society. Society will never change until the heart changes. We can pass every law. We can have all kinds of initiatives. We can throw money at it all day long. But if Christ is not the center of it all, it will all fall flat. 
So we as a church that believe in fighting the good fight and social justice and helping people, we believe in that. But if the gospel is not the end game, we're gonna get away ultimately from what Christ wants us to do. So a lot of people bring up, because we have a ministry here called 5,000 that a lot of you are, we go out and we feed the homeless. Yeah, it's wonderful. Let me tell you a little bit about 5,000 in the Bible. A lot of people say, well, Jesus was out there feeding people, right? He was. Do you know what he was doing before they fed everyone? He was sharing about the kingdom of God. Go back and read it. He had 5,000 men, probably another 10,000 women and children sitting there. And before it says, before they started eating, he was sharing with them about the kingdom of God. And then he saw that the people were hungry. So it's both. But first and foremost, it was the gospel. First and foremost, it was the message of eternity. And that has to be the message of the church. It has to be the message of the church. We also have to set personal ambition aside. Look at what Nehemiah did as a political leader. He was so generous and selfless. Every single day, he fed 150 people. It's like the the introvert's worst nightmare, right? 150 people for lunch at your house every single day. All these people came over, but look at what he says. It's so important. He says, but I didn't pay for it with the taxpayer dollars. He says, it was too much of a burden on the people. I'll take the hit. That's what he did. That's what a leader did, sacrificed his own comforts. And what he was doing was he was displaying Christ-like leadership. Christ-like leadership is always sacrificial. Because if you and I in this room claim to be followers of Jesus, Jesus Christ, the architect and creator of the universe, came to earth, looked at his disciples, and he said, I didn't come for you to serve me, I came to serve you. And then he washed their freaking feet. So if we claim to be followers, Christians, that's what that word means, right? Little Christs is by definition what that word means, that we are trying to emulate Jesus. If we are trying to emulate Jesus, there is no way to emulate Jesus without living a life that is sacrificial, that gives up our comforts for the greater good of those around us and for the kingdom of God. There's no way. And here's the thing. Every single one of us in this room is called to lead on some level. And I'll show you that here in a second, okay? The reason why Nehemiah could do this and the reason why we can do it today is we understand and Nehemiah understood that ultimately our reward is not in this life. Ultimately, our reward comes later. So you can tell Nehemiah was probably tired, right? Looks up to God and says, God, remember me for what I'm doing with these people. Remember me for this. That's not him being selfish, right? That's not him trying to get accolades or sympathy. He wanted to make sure that he was doing what God wanted him to do. He wanted to make sure that his priorities were in line. And again, he ultimately knew that his reward lied in the life to come. And here's the thing. If you're a Christian in this room, when we get to heaven, there's gonna be different degrees of rewards. We're all all gonna be living in the same size condo, right? I'm probably gonna be mowing some of your grass up there. So, but here's the thing, the size of our reward in heaven is gonna be heavily contingent on how we've treated each other. Because the the Bible even says, you will be known as a follower of me by how you've treated each other. There's a lot of bad theology that Christians spout. And one of them that I hear a lot is people go, well, I don't go to church because it's just me and God. Well, that's not biblical. It's not supposed to just be you and God. That's why the Bible says it's not good that man be alone, right? We're we're supposed to be in community. That's why God himself is perfect community, a father, son, spirit, right? 
We are meant to be around other people. That's why Galatians says, bear each other's burden, and that fulfills the law of Christ. You can't bear other people's burdens if it's just you and Jesus all the time. You're supposed to be with other people. That's why 60% of the 10 commandments focus on how we treat each other. Isn't that interesting? More than even how we treat God. We're to be together. So here's where we're gonna talk brutally honest for a minute today, okay guys? What we have to do if we're going to accomplish this idea, right, of looking out for those around us, for, for being a collective group, is we have to assess where our hearts are. I hear a lot of people say things like, man, my heart, are, my, my heart is my kids. I care about my kids more than anything. Now you drive a $50,000 car, you wear the best of the best clothes, you guys take all these vacations and leave your kids at home with your babysitters. You've set nothing aside for your kids. So what that says is you really don't care for your kids as much as you tell everyone you care about your kids. If you and your, your spouse drive $100,000 worth of cars but you've never set a dime aside for your kid's future, you can tell me all day long that your kids are the most important thing but it's just not true. The reason I can say that with confidence is Jesus said where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. What Jesus meant, just like when we say our kids are the most important thing, but we don't live that way, there's a lot of people who say Jesus Christ is the most important thing. I'm a Christian. I don't read my Bible. I don't pray. I only go to church when it's convenient. I've never given to the church. I've never given to the work of the gospel in my community. I don't serve but I love Jesus. Jesus would say that I can follow the trail of your time, your money, and your energy, and I can find out where you invest those things, and at the end of that, that's where your heart will lie. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart resides. Now listen, I'm not saying all that to condemn you and make you feel bad, but if we're gonna be honest, because the Lord knows where our heart is, if we're ever gonna turn the tide and be what we're supposed to be, we need to step back in humility and go, where is my heart? Because if I look at where my time, money, and energy goes, it doesn't point to Jesus. It doesn't point to my family. It doesn't point to my community. If I hear people say that they care about social justice but they've never given a dime to, to, to move it forward, you don't care about social justice. You care about it just enough to make everyone think that you're a good person but you really don't care about it. We need to be honest and assess where our heart lies. We also need to understand that the only way that the world is going to change or that society is going to change is the heart. We can pass every single law you wanna pass. We can feed every single homeless person. We can clothe everyone. We can make everything free. We can do all that stuff, right? But if the hearts of humans haven't changed, ultimately nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to change. And so we have to make sure that the heart is placed in the proper position first, first. We also have to talk about that how we work in the world matters. When times get tough, right? This is when we're tempted to, tempted to cut corners. We may even be tempted to take advantage of other people. When times get tough, we really see what's inside of us. So when I was speaking at, at uh, Brentwood Baptist the other day, uh, Mike Glenn, who's 20-something years older than me, first time I ever met him, he's a pastor at Brentwood Baptist, nice guy, really nice guy. We were having lunch together, and, 
he asked one of the other guys we're having lunch with, he said, do you know what happens? Do you know what comes out of a tube of toothpaste when you squeeze it? And this guy goes, we were talking about COVID and we were talking about how the church responded to COVID. Not favorably, by the way. This person says, well, when you squeeze a tube of toothpaste, toothpaste comes out. And he says, no, that's not true. It may say toothpaste on the side and we expect that to come out. But what we learned about the church in the last two years is it may have said toothpaste on the side, but when we squeezed it, it wasn't toothpaste that came out. It may say Christian on the side, but when pressure is applied, I'm telling you for the last two years, it wasn't a lot of Jesus that came out of the church. Everyone's awake, right? Okay, just making sure. We need to assess where we're at. We have to honor God in how we work. We have to honor God in our ethical practices. Do you know that humanity was designed to work? Do you know that we're not made to sit around and just watch Netflix all the time? Do you guys know that? Do you know you're designed for something better than that? Do you know that you may get free checks from the government, but your dignity is worth more than that? Do you know that? I'm sorry. Do you know that before the fall of man in Genesis 1 and 2, it said that God didn't create the earth until he knew he was going to create someone to work it? That's before the fall. People say, well, work was a result of sin. Nope. Go back and read your Bible. We worked before. We had a job to do. We had a purpose, right? We are meant to do something. If we are able-bodied enough to do it, we are meant to do it. We are also called to love the poor and love the oppressed and people who have been through hard times and who need a helping hand. The church should be there to do that. Maybe the reason the government has to do so much for social justice is the church doesn't. And so we need to step in and do these things. But when we do that, we need to balance wisdom and benevolence. We don't just throw money at people. I recommend if you're on the street and someone's holding a sign, right? Don't just throw money at them because if they're addicted to crack cocaine, you just bought it for them, right? Don't do that. But we work with great nonprofits here in town. We can direct them in the, in, the, in the right place. We have to use wisdom. When people come in and say, can you pay our electric bill? Travis and Muhammad, they sit down and do a budget. They may not need us to pay their electric bill. They might just need to sell their car that's $800 a month, get a car that's only $200 a month, and man, your electric bill's covered. We don't need to get that for you. But we live in a culture to where we buy whatever we want, and then we expect someone else to provide our needs. That's just not the way it works. But the problem is so many people have not been trained how to handle money biblically. We haven't been taught that we are to live within our means, to try to avoid excessive debt, that we're, we're not to be materialistic, that we are to be tithing so the church has a storehouse so it can help people out, right? And we have not trained people how to use their money biblically, and we have to get back to that. How we lead also matters. How you use your time matters. How you use your talents and abilities and your resources that God has given you, it matters. And when we don't steward these things well, it doesn't just affect you. It affects people all around you. And what we are doing in the United States at an unbelievable escalation is we are digging a hole that other people are gonna have to climb out of. That's what we're doing. And we're doing it as individuals too. We get into such a hole. I can't tell you how many people have been in my office and they had a loved one die that was in such a financial mess that they had to get in and pay all this stuff out. And that's not fair. And if you get back to Jesus's principles that we treat others the way we wanna be treated, I don't want to get in a hole that you dug. So I'm not gonna dig a hole for you to get into. That's not right. 
It's not fair, it's not responsible. So that brings us to the next thing. Are we living responsibly? Are we living sacrificially? We can't live sacrificially though if we're not responsible because we have nothing to give. We have nothing to help with. But we're so worried about making sure that we drive a nicer car than our neighbor or making sure that we live in this neighborhood that we can't even buy furniture to put in it. We got nothing for our children. Do you know the Bible says a good man leaves an inheritance for his grandchildren? Did you know the Bible says that? For his grandchildren, that's two generations. I'm not saying you have to be loaded, but you have to leave something. You have to leave people in a better position than what you found them. And here's the thing, guys, the world is watching how the church handles all these times. The world is watching that churches get into tens of millions of dollars of debt for stupid buildings. They see this stuff and they see how Christians handle all this. So do we understand? I don't care who you are in this room. I don't care if you're a single 22 year old. People are watching you and you are leading on some level, whether you acknowledge it and take it responsibly or not. All of us, if we are called to be followers of Christ, we are called to set an example in the world around us. Well, Corey, where in the world are you getting that from? I'm glad you asked. I got it straight from Jesus's mouth. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus looks at his followers. Listen to me. He doesn't just look at his super intelligent, good-looking, influential, affluential followers. He looks at all of his followers. And he says, you are the light of the world. If, do you understand what that means? If anyone's going to see the direction to go, they need the light. And Jesus said, you're the light. You are the one that leads. You are the one that shows the way. That's you. And of course, he speaks logically, because Jesus is logic. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and covers it up. Jesus is saying, I don't give you the light to show the world where to go just so you can be selfish and hoard it up for yourself. But isn't this the Christian culture we've created in the United States? Even though we come to church and learn about a sacrificial savior, it's really all about me. It's about my comforts. You better get me out of here in an hour. I have things to do. You better entertain me. You better not challenge me. Kyle better pick the right songs. Doesn't do enough hymns. I'm gonna go somewhere else. All this bull crap, right? And what it's become is all about us. And we have taken the light and we've stuffed it somewhere because we just wanna make sure that we can see. I'm really concerned if you can see. But Jesus says, this is not why I gave you the light. He says that we should put the, the light somewhere where everyone in the house is blessed. If we've been given much, listen to me, if we've been given much, we should share it. Communism, no, 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 it's Christianity. Amen. That if I see you and you can't afford to eat, I should make sure that you get food, right? That's loving your neighbor. I shouldn't be forced to do it. I should want to do it. I should, I should want everyone in the house to be able to see Jesus says in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, that the church is called to do good works, not so we can get glory, but so all of that attention can be deflected straight up to Jesus Christ, that the world should see the good works of the church and say there must be something about their God because look at the example that they're setting. 
Sometimes I get a question, this is my last slide and I'll let you go. The brutality is, is almost done. Sometimes I get a, a, a question stuck in my head and it's typically for me, but maybe it's for you too. I felt like the Lord asking me, Corey, why do you do all this? Is it for you or is it for something else? Who are you in this for? Are you in it just so you can escape hell? Are you in it because it's a, it's a good job and you get to talk in front of a bunch of people? What are you in it for? What are you in? Or, you Rocky and Bullwinkle people, the two titles, right? Or, whose kingdom are you building? Any of you that have had children in here, you know that when you have an infant, they do nothing for you, right? They scream when they're hungry. They poop and pee all over everything. They throw up on you. Hey, and throw up on your face. They, it's a mess, right? There's nothing, they, 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 there's no, it's a very one-way relationship with, with babies, right? You love them, but they don't do anything for you. But it's cute. When they're kids, it's cute, right? But when they get to be about four or five years old and they're still using the bathroom all over the place and they're screaming and throwing a temper tantrum on the floor when they don't get what they want, it's not so cute anymore either, right? Because now they're a kid. And then as they get older, right, maybe let's say they graduate high school, they're 18 years old, and instead of getting a job and moving out and being a responsible person, like they just want to play Xbox all day. And maybe when they were 12, it was kind of cute to play games with them, but now it's kind of time to grow up and be a man, right, or a woman, and it's not cute anymore. And then they get to be in their 20s or 30s or maybe even their 40s, and they just don't want to be responsible. They don't want to grow up, and again, maybe that was cute when they were a baby, but is a grown person, like it's, it's just kind of repulsive, isn't it? And we do the same thing in Christianity, don't we? See, Jesus said we're all born again. And now listen, when we're born again, when we become Christians, we, we can't really do much for anyone else. We're just absorbing, we're just consuming. That's what we do. Consuming the word, we're, we're, you know, we don't know how to do things, so people help us out all the time. But the problem is in the United States of America, we have people who have been Christians for 20, 30, 40 years, and what's happening is, is they're just consumers. And quite frankly, it's not cute anymore. They're no longer spiritual babies. You should be a spiritual adult. You should be contributing. You should be making disciples of Jesus and doing something for the kingdom. And your consumeristic attitude is no longer cute. It's no longer cuddly. And I'll be honest with you, it has not served us very well in the United States, has it? Grow up. That's why Peter said, some of you keep drinking milk and by this point you should be eating meat, but you haven't developed because a lot of us are in this to build our own kingdom. But Jesus said there are two great commands, love God and love others. And then somewhere after that, you and I come into the picture. But it's him, my neighbor, and then I'm somewhere down here. It is completely the opposite of everything your culture tells you. But don't we live in an antichrist culture? Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room this morning, and maybe you're not a believer, or maybe you're a new believer, but you got a lot of questions. Up here on my right, your left, Pastor Mike is up here. He'd love to talk with you. Please don't be nervous about that or intimidated. No one's even gonna notice. So if you wanna come up and talk to Pastor Mike, he'd love to talk with you, okay? 
We also have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you wanna, if you wanna pray or have someone pray with you about anything, it can be for you, it can be for your family, it can be for your job, it can be for someone else, anything. There are men and women on both sides of the stage. They'd love to pray with you, okay? The last thing is this, and, and today I, I would like our communion to be very personal. All the way around this room, wherever you see a lamp on, a, on one of those tables, there is bread and wine, which represents the body and blood of Jesus. Everyone who has asked God to forgive them of their sins, you're welcome to go get the bread and the wine and go back to your seat. But here's what I want you to do with that. I want you to really think about the fact that the God that created everything, that gives us everything good, that that God gave his only son as a sacrifice so we can be forgiven, so we can be restored, so we can have a relationship with God that we can be the light that shines so other people can feel that and be saved and changed, that we are meant to be contributors, not just consumers. And here's what I would like you to do is you're sitting there, you take the, the bread and the wine, the body and the blood, kind of on your own time in your seat. Pray to God, talk to him a little bit. Here's what I wanna challenge you with. Take a, take a couple of minutes and ask God, God, if I've been selfish, Lord, or if I've been building up my kingdoms, my kingdom, Father, please reveal that to me. Please show me. Please help me, God. And just be vulnerable. Ask him to expose to you where your heart's been. He will. And be humble enough to, to, to listen to him and to respond. Father, Lord, I love you. God, I love this church. This is my family, God. Father, these are hard truths. These are hard lessons, God, but you want us to hear them. So I pray, Lord, that, that all of us today, that we, we absorb these things and we take it to heart. I pray that you bless our families, God, our children, our marriages, our relationships. I pray that you give us the strength to be the best examples at our place of work or our schools or wherever we may go after this. And Father, I pray that you keep us safe until we meet again and get to worship again. Lord, we love you. We praise you, God. Bless my brothers and sisters in your name, in Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you so much.